This is the Anna Dare Podcast. Hi, how are you doing? Thank you for tuning in to the Anna Dare Podcast. If you are just listening for the first time, well, welcome. Yay. I'm stoked to have you listening. Uh, this podcast is bits and pieces from my show, Triple M Gippsland Breakfast Show that I do. Um, Monday to Friday, 6am till 9am, 94.3 and 97.9. And it's also some uh, unique stuff as well that I do just for the pod. So this week, what have I got for you? Well, I had a catch up with Matt Preston. Oh my gosh, he's just such a legend. Aussie TV, radio, of course he's released a ton of cookbooks and he was once, of course, one of the OG judges on MasterChef as well. Um, I've always been a fan because he's just so super styling and he loves food. So he's got a new cookbook out. I'm going to chat with him and this is, I'm going to play you the full interview that I had with him. I was really lucky to be able to talk to him for almost 10 minutes, but of course I couldn't play the whole lot on the Triple M Gippsland Breakfast Show. So you're getting the whole thing uh, on the podcast here. It's, it's a pretty interesting chat actually. And also I am going to tell you a bit about Norman, my beautiful dog. He's a giant Newfoundland. And Newfoundlands, if you didn't know, are water rescue dogs. That's what they they were bred to do originally. They'd be on um, ships and boats in very cold waters in Canada and they'd jump off if someone went overboard and they'd rescue people. Actually, if you want to have a look, there's some really great YouTube footage. The Italian Coast Guard actually uses uh, Newfoundlands on their choppers and boats, etc., for rescues. And you can find some really cool YouTube videos of them jumping out of choppers into water. And uh, they're fantastic dogs. Anyway, I decided to test Norman and see if he really is good in the water. He's only had the opportunity to kind of paddle around creeks and things like that because of lockdown. So I finally was able to take him out to a dam over the weekend and let him actually try and swim. And I thought, well, if he's a rescue dog, you've got to get in there too and see if he rescues me. So I did. It wasn't as cold as I thought it would be considering <laughs> Victoria weather. Um, so we will um, we'll have a chat about that. I'll, I'll tell you all about how Norman went with his water rescue skills. But first, you might have heard or seen there was a video doing the rounds this week of uh, Jeff Bezos and his girlfriend at some event talking to Leonardo DiCaprio. Well... <laughs> it's had a lot of run uh, in the Twitterverse and online over the last week or so because of the attention that Jeff Bezos's girlfriend was giving to Leonardo DiCaprio. I mean, come on, he's one of the biggest stars in the world, as if you wouldn't, even though you're dating the second richest man in the world. Sometimes looks and money, well, uh, here's my take on the viral video. Jeff's girlfriend completely ignoring Jeff and making eyes at Leo during a Hollywood party. I guess it goes to show in this case, you might be the second richest man in the world worth nearly $300 billion, but all the money in the world won't buy you good looks or charisma. Now, will it? He's the founder of Amazon. $300 billion. Building your own rocket to take you into space. $10 billion. Watching your girlfriend throw yourself at Leonardo DiCaprio, priceless. Now, Jeff is uh, always copying it, obviously, for not paying his Amazon employees enough money. Looks like he might not be paying his girlfriend enough money either. <laughs> now, the day after the video went viral, uh, Jeff hit back at Leo with a Twitter post because that's how real men, you know, they fight for their ladies these days. Uh, in the post, he said, Leo, come over here. I want to show you something. And then it was a picture of Jeff standing next to a sign that says, Danger, Steep Cliff, Fatal Drop. Tough call, Jeff. 
you really, really scared him. So uh, like Leo, I would imagine, doesn't care, really. I mean, he's not going to care unless your girlfriend is younger than 23. He's just not interested. Now, the real problem here, I don't think, isn't Jeff Bezos' girlfriend making eyes at Leonardo DiCaprio. The real problem is that I don't, Jeff Bezos has a girlfriend. Dude, you're worth nearly $300 billion. We're all on, you know, different journeys. I get that. But if you're worth nearly $300 billion and in a relationship that lasts longer than the weekend, well, mate, you're an idiot. <laughs> the world's your oyster when you're the the second richest man in the world. Am I right? <laughs> Lifestyles of the rich and famous, right? All right. I am not rich or famous and my lifestyle is incredibly different to theirs. So what I did over the weekend was I decided that I would take my beautiful Newfoundland dog. Now, if you don't know the Newfoundland breed, they are very big dogs. They're called a giant breed. And Norman isn't even 18 months old yet, and he's enormous. People look at him and go, is that a bear? And everywhere I go, people stop me and want to ask me questions like, how much do you feed him? How much does he weigh? And how much does he poop? They're the three standard questions that everybody wants to ask me. Uh, And he's a water rescue dog. That's what they were bred for back in the day. So he hasn't got to do a lot of swimming, unfortunately, because of COVID, lockdowns, etc. Just kind of paddling around in creeks and things, but never proper open water. So I wanted to test him and see whether or not he was going to rescue me if I was in water and I called for him to help me. So I took him out to a place called Blue Rock Dam that's in Gippsland and went for went for a swim. I mean, he loves the water, but we went to this, we parked at the boat ramp and there was already another dog there when we arrived. And that dog was an amazing swimmer. They were throwing the stick out for him and or her, I think it was, and she's swimming out. She would like launch herself in and swim on out to get this stick and bring it back and great swimmer, very confident in the water. Norman came barreling down the boat ramp and he runs into the water, but he stops when his feet can't touch the ground anymore. And he kept falling off the side of the boat ramp, bless him. He didn't realise that the concrete would stop at the edge. And he kept falling in and kind of getting a bit confused as to what was going on. And then he'd grab himself back up onto the boat ramp and off he'd go again. So I decided, well, to test his skills properly, I needed to get in the water. So I went in. It took me quite a while because, it, I mean, it was cold. It's Victoria and it's a dam. I mean, fresh water. It's, um, it's cold. And I, I sort of walked in, eased myself in, stood there sort of waist deep for a while. And he was coming in to, you know, swim near me or stand near me, but he wouldn't go any further. And I thought, I've got to really go right in. So whew, took a deep breath, swam on out a bit, went through it all and went, Oh, okay, I've adjusted. It's cold. I know I can deal with this though. And so I thought, all right, I'm just going to splash around a bit and call out to him, which is what I did. And he, of course, like looks at me and, you know, trots down the boat ramp, but he wouldn't go any further than the edge of the boat ramp. As soon as he couldn't touch the ground, that was it. He was not coming to rescue me. And here I am out. They're going, come on, Normie, help me, please. I'm splashing my hands in the water and I'm... (laughs) giving him motivational talk like, I believe in you. You can do it. You know, come on, Norman, come on, please help, help. No, absolutely refused to get off the boat ramp and come towards me. So I, I'm going to say it was a Norman fail. He didn't pull out those inbuilt breeding <laughs> feels and be the water rescue dog that he's meant to be. But, you know, he also has had no training to do that. So I think 
what my takeaway is, is that I'm going to buy him like a life vest so he feels a little bit more comfortable maybe when he's floating. And of course, do it more often, you know, really give him some more practice and teach him that it's okay, it's safe, you're a really good swimmer, you're meant to be doing this and I'm sure he's going to love it eventually. But he needs some work, that's for sure. He also needs a hell of a lot more training because after we'd got out, these two cars rocked up with a boat. They were obviously going to go out fishing or something. Three blokes got out and then this girl got out. She was maybe she was a teenage girl and she had uh, something wrong with her knee and she was on crutches. She had her knee sort of, um, you know, taped up and she was on crutches and Norman saw her and, oh, my gosh, he started barking and barking and getting really crazy and I thought, oh, God, what's he going to do? He's never seen crutches before. So I think that might have freaked him out somehow and that was his reaction. I felt so bad. I kept saying to the girl, he's not going to hurt you. He's a giant sook. He's just has never seen crutches. Oh, God, so embarrassing. So I had to get his leash and put him on the leash and drag him back to the car. Um, He needs more training. It's as simple as that. I am... I'm not an experienced dog trainer. I have no idea what I'm doing. And I took him to puppy school when he was a little pup and he got the basics, sit, you know, come, wait, all that sort of thing. Um, But that's as far as it's gone. So that's the goal for me over summer uh, is to get him into the water, get him swimming more and get him some proper training because otherwise, I mean, he's hurt me before by accident, completely by accident, uh, pulled me over into a puddle of mud. (laughs) at the park and, um, you know, various other small injuries that he can't help. I mean, he's a giant puppy, so that's the goal. All right, enough about my beautiful dog, although I could talk about him for hours. Uh, I got the honour and privilege to talk to Matt Preston. Now, he, of course, you know him uh, and love him, I would imagine. He's been on our TV screens for years and years. He writes a, you know, column on food. He's just a massive foodie and... I was really stoked to be able to chat with him about his brand new book. It's called uh, World of Flavour. It's out now. And this is the full chat I had to him with him. I couldn't air the whole thing, unfortunately, uh, on the Triple M Gippsland Breakfast Show. So here's the whole thing. Enjoy. Matt Preston, easily one of the most stylish men in Australian entertainment. Hey, how are you going, mate? Thanks for chatting to me. Stylish or ridiculously dressed, it depends <laughs> on your, your perspective, but I'm, 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 I'm happy with your, I'm happy with your, your appreciation. Thank you. Oh, my pleasure. Now, you have Matt Preston's World of Flavour, a book coming out just in time for Christmas. Well, it is actually out now. And this one is a bit, you know, a bit of a cookbook with a twist because you've got done quite a bit of research into the background of all these foods that we know so well. Why did you decide to do this? Well, I've been, I've been writing a column. I've been writing a column about the history of dishes and then trying to put a, a modern spin on the dishes for, for five or six years of taste. So it seemed like a... It seems like an, it's, a, it's a really interesting area, made doubly interesting, I think, because in that period um, that I was writing the column, the stuff that I maybe wrote five years ago, now you can, you, my attitude has changed because new information is available, um, old cookbooks have been digitized, mm. you know, whole swathes of newspapers from the, the you know, from pre-1950s in Australia and also in the UK and the US are available for searching. So, so suddenly you can dig a whole lot deeper into dishes that we're really familiar with. And they're, you know, they're, it's just nice to be able to bust some of those myths that are commonly held. And again, it's, been, it's, it's nice also to pay credit to, to the, some of those amazing people who came up with the dish first that maybe have been forgotten in a kind of, in a kind of a, um, uh, uh, an avalanche of people mirroring bad information that hasn't been checked. So, so basically, yes, every, every one of the 100-plus recipes in there, I've tried to find out 
where this comes from. I try to, if there's stuff that's commonly held, I try and dismiss it. You know, an obvious one is, you know, spaghetti bolognese. Um, yeah. I, it's not know, from this, Italy? No, not from Italy. They made a, they made a ragu in, in Bologna, which is where the name comes from. But that, that was chunks of meat. It was very meaty, often made with livers. It wasn't served with spaghetti. It was served with maybe either like a, like a pappardelle or, or the, the, the first kind of real recipe, 1891 Pellegrini Artuzzi, is made by a, a strange, chunky, lumpy pasta called, called horse's teeth. Wow. Um, but, but, no, but no tomato in it. I think for us all to recognize spaghetti bolognese, and with any dish, you, you try and look at what, what really makes a dish a dish. So spaghetti bolognese, I have to have spaghetti. Yes. It has to have lots of tomato in the sauce because it's tomato sauce, and then it has to have um, minced meat. And that's, that, that's really, it seems to be one of those recipes that Italians who fled southern Italy through economic circumstances, you know, to turn of the turn of the 20, beginning of the 20th century, ended up in the UK or the US or Australia and started making the red sauce they're familiar with, but meat was more readily available. So suddenly mince, mince gets added. Mm. In America, it ends up being spaghetti, you know, spaghetti meatballs. Um, and in Australia and the UK, it ends up being spaghetti bolognese. But the real freaky thing that I found was the, the originally the, the traditional recipe of spaghetti bolognese, the first one is cited as being Elizabeth David's recipe, mid 1950s. But I was actually able to find a, a piece in an Australian newspaper um, from, ni- from four years earlier, 1950, t- talking about a, a bolognese, how to make a bolognese the way we'd make it today. So it shows that, that we, we were into bolognese, and, and you dig a bit deeper, bolognese was a huge hit in um, Sydney in the 1930s. Department stores were selling it to take home. Um, the, the, the coolest restaurants in, in Sydney, were, were, it was their signature dish. You know, people were turning up in white time tails for dinner and then the, 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 the host of the table would toss the dish, toss the spaghetti bolognese at the table. There's wonderful pictures you can find of men dressed in white time tails tossing great bowls of spaghetti bolognese. But I, I like this idea that that, that, that tradition we have a, we have a long and, um, and a real sense of ownership over. Uh, you definitely don't want to wear white when you're tossing around spaghetti bolognese. I mean, well, well, uh, you're, you're absolutely the, the idea of white time tables. So you know, the white shirt, the white, the white bow tie, the white waistcoat, and the, the, the flicky ends of that spaghetti flicking up and throwing tomato sauce over it. It's a recipe. The recipe for disaster. It really is. Um, Matt, I have another question for you, but I have to go to uh, a song. But could I um, get you to hang about? Because I really want to yeah, get to the bottom of this Aussie New Zealand situation. I think people are going to be a, maybe a bit upset by this controversy. Pavlova, <laughs> we all think it was from New Zealand. Are you saying that's not correct? Well, we, we never used to think it was from New Zealand. There was, there was that, that period when it was a proudly Australian dessert. Mm. New Zealand sort of took a bit of a claim to it then. Wonderful bit of research from one called um, Dr. Helen Leach at the University of Otago found all these examples of, of pavlova-like dishes. Um, and, and New Zealand has claimed it as their own and, and, and sort of stared us down. And we, we rather backed off in Australia. We went, okay, all right. Well, okay, it, it, we'll it, let it, you have it. Academic, <laughs> we'll let you have it. You know, we'll have Russell Crowe. You can have pavlova. <laughs> I don't think that's necessarily a fair deal. Um, but but when, you actually dig, when you actually dig into the story, a lot of those, those dishes aren't, a pavlova is recognised. Things like pav- the pavlova kisses are little, little, um, tiny coffee-flavoured meringues. They weren't, you know, that lovely pucker meringue with the cream and the fruit on top. The, the recipe that, that New Zealanders cite as being um, the kind of the proof that they were first was a a, a filled meringue cake from uh, a book called Home Cookery for New Zealand that came out in 1926. Mm-hmm. Now that that is great. You, the recipe's in there. It actually it looks like a pavlova written by a woman called Emily Suttle. 
But, but being the, the, the nerd that I am, um, you also, when you look up Emily Futter, you see that Emily Futter wrote, wrote a book four years earlier called Australian Home Cookery, oh. which is pretty much the same book that she's been versioned <laughs> four years later. And there, in that book from 1922, and you can see it online, is her recipe for a meringue cake. So, so I, I think we can start claiming back the pavlova as our own and, and shooting back some of the credit to, to Bert Sachs from the Esplanade Hotel in Perth, who, who really came up with the first is just called a pavlova, not called a pavlova cake or pavlova kisses or something, something different like that. Um, and the only thing about that is that, uh, that there's also another wonderful researcher called Annabel Utrecht, who has made her life's work to dig deep into pavlova. And she's found a number of dishes out of Germany and Austria that sound awfully similar wow. to the pavlova. And there's I a thing always... called a, a schwam tort. Oh, God. Okay. I was always under the impression that an Aussie made it for the uh, visit of Anna Pavlova, my name, uh, the ballerina, and that's how it got its name. She was visiting Australia. Yeah, but yeah. Well, you see, Anna Pavlova came to Australia 26, 29. Ah. Um, the, the Pavlova we always recognised in 1935, but Sash. The, the, um, the, the, so the name, what happened is after Pavlova's uh, arrival, and actually even before Pavlova's trip here, lots of dishes were called Pavlova. They were oh. named after, you know, because she was kind of one of the superstars of the day. Of the, day. the first one, I think, a, a strawberry, kind of like a strawberry ice cream dessert out of America in 1909. Mm. So, so, so there is a story, and this is what I love about, mm. about, about digging up these things. There's a story that the hotel where she stayed in Melbourne, um, the chef there came up with a pavlova, but because I can't find any proof, any no newspaper articles talking about this dish, no copy of a menu outstanding showing the dish, you have to kind of discard that from the book. But I love this idea that maybe inspired by, by people listening, they may dig into their attic and find an old menu or a newspaper report that, that supports that there was this dish um, called the Pavlova made at that point. And that's the great thing about food history, that, you know, new things, new things are discovered, new ideas come out, and we get wiser as time passes. And, you know, and it, every dish has got a story. Um, almost every dish has got a story. There are a couple like Sancho Bao that seem to have just seem to magically just appear. But, <laughs> but it, it's, it's great to be able to find. And that's the thing about, that's why this book is such a great joy to write, because, you know, you start finding the hundred tastiest recipes for Australian home cooks, and then, and you try and make them quicker and easier and tastier, and then you try and dig into the past mm. line. Oh, it's fascinating. Honestly, I could sit down over, a, you know, a lunch that then moves into dinner and talk to you for hours about yeah. it. <laughs> um, thank you so much. But we haven't got the time right now, but thank you so much. Matt Preston's World of Flavour, it is out now in all good bookshops. Of course, you can order it online as well. Uh, every home should be getting this under the Christmas tree this year. It looks like you had such a ball making it all and eating it all, I imagine, too. Uh, thank you so much, Matt Preston. <laughs> Thank you, Sasha. I love to talk to you. It was absolutely my pleasure. Oh, gosh, I love food talk. Uh, all right. Well, that's it for the Anna Dare podcast for midweek. I'll have another one out on Friday where, of course, I get to talk about my first or second favourite. I don't know. Is food my favourite or is TV? Gosh, it's such a hard decision. How, how do I decide? I'm not going to decide. They're on par. Food and TV, I love them both equally. Uh, TV time, we'll talk what I've been watching this week. Uh, you enjoy and thank you so much for listening. If you want more from Anna, make sure you catch a weekday mornings on Gippsland's Triple M. Also available on Listener.